0: This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. The natural world is full of amazing wildlife. One of our favorite animals to talk about on this show are whales. Whales were the focus of a three-year project by National Geographic photographer Brian Scary. This week, Where We Live, we feature our best conversations of the year. In May, Scary joined us to talk about Secrets of the Whales, the name of his new book and docu-series on Disney+. He also worked on a cover story for National Geographic. Scary traveled to 24 locations around the globe, documenting whales like orcas, humpbacks, belugas, and sperm whales. Coming up, we talk about what he learned and what our role should be to protect these magnificent creatures. Brian Scary joins us on Zoom. Welcome back to the show.
2: Thanks, Lucy. Great to be here.
0: I mentioned that you're a renowned underwater photojournalist, and you've written several books, including Shark. And if our listeners want to join in the conversation, uh, they can call 860-275-7266 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Brian, I mentioned that you're a native New Englander. Uh, Where did you grow up and what drew you to underwater photography?
2: Well, I spent my entire life uh, in Massachusetts in a little textile mill town about uh, 35 miles west of Boston and um, actually began scuba diving in New England waters. I, I got certified when I was about 15 years old and was diving the coast of Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island. I worked on a charter boat taking folks out to mostly do shipwreck diving. Uh, for many years, out of Rhode Island, and uh, we would sail a lot of Mystic and Stonington, and so place, uh, places like that. I now live on the coast of Maine. I just moved a couple of years ago to the southern coast of Maine. But um, yeah, but New England and New England waters are near and dear to my heart. Uh,
0: I understand your first underwater encounter that really uh, uh, stuck with you uh, related to sharks was back uh, when you saw a female blue shark uh, back in 1982. Uh, Tell us about that experience.
2: Yeah, that's right. Um, well, I, you know, was fascinated by sharks. I think I'm probably one of the few people that was actually motivated to go into the ocean after watching Jaws <laughs> in 1975. Um, <clears throat> but I had never seen one until 1982, and I became friends with a, a marine biologist, a shark expert named Wes Pratt, who was working at the National Marine Fisheries uh, Lab in Narragansett, Rhode Island, for NOAA. And he told me that for the previous few years, he and some of his colleagues would go out each summer off the coast of Rhode Island to look for sharks. And he had built this homemade little shark cage out of fencing material. And um, it just, you know, really captured my imagination. So he invited me on one of these trips. And we went out that day in the summer, um, uh, maybe 20, 30 miles off the coast of Rhode Island. And I remember being in that cage for hours and just sort of looking out at the murky water, bouncing around in my thick wetsuit and, you know, trying not to get seasick and hoping to see a shark, and nothing happened. But then in the afternoon, it was late in the day, maybe 4 p.m. or so, I saw this beautiful, what turned out to be female blue shark sort of meandering in down the Chum Slick. And... Uh, they told me later that I was the first person amongst their group that ever left the shark cage. I opened the door and swam out because I wanted to get closer to that animal to, to try to make a photograph, but but also just to be closer to that animal. And um, I can remember that having this mix of emotions, you know, on one, uh, on one hand, I very much wanted to get close to the animal to, to see what that was like and to make the picture, but I was also, you know, a little nervous. I didn't know if, if, if she would be aggressive or might bite me or anything and um but you know sort of that fear just just dissipated as i became hypnotized by how graceful she moved in that deep indigo blue color on her back um that blue sharks have and you know to me it was a, a profound moment i remember that it was as if she was on some ancient journey and i was a, a momentary distraction uh, and then she swam off into the gloom and i never saw her again but um but you know that that brief encounter um, really sort of hooked me, no pun intended, um, for the years to come.
0: How big was this blue shark? You know, it's, I can't believe you opened the cage to swim uh, towards her.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, she wasn't that large. I mean, she was, it, blue sharks tend to be in the maybe two meters, up to three meters in length as a, as a rule. Some do get bigger. but uh, So I would say she was maybe six or seven feet in length, which, you know, was about the size of a, of a human, let's say, um, but you know, underwater in in sort of this alien environment where you're not that great with swimming, not compared to a shark, um and you're trying to move close to um what what looks like a very big animal when you're up close to them, so it was a little intimidating, but you know i I think i've I've often said this that I think you know humans and maybe all animals have this sort of this little voice inside that lets us know or we we can pick up on the vibes of animals and um you know, walk into a neighbor's yard one day and you see their dog and it's wagging its tail and you get a good vibe another day, you know not to to bother that dog. And I think it's the same with sharks or maybe other animals where you just sort of have a vibe that you think it's okay. Maybe that's a little... Um, uh, not true all the time, but I, I think for me anyway, that was the case here. I just didn't feel threatened by that that blue shark. Mm.
0: You referenced uh, the movie Jaws. Uh, you know, since that movie came out, and, uh, many people pointed that as a disservice to mm. uh, sharks because of the perceptions of them uh, being uh, so dangerous and, and fearsome.
2: Yeah, well, it, it's true, and I think that you know it would be hard to argue against that that premise that it did a lot of harm and. Made um, sharks the villains, and you know they were eradicated after that, and still are being eradicated today. And um, it, it did no no great um, help to to sharks. You know, I, on the other hand, I mean, I do respect the film, the book by Peter Benchley was a was to me a, a, a fun novel to read um, as an old fashioned yarn about the ocean uh... like Moby dick or something i i, I sort of respected i loved the direction the acting and so forth of the movie and i became friends with peter benchley who wrote the book and 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 the screenplay um... later in his life i spent a month diving with benchley in cuba you know and and he became ultimately a great shark conservationist he spent most of the rest of his life he died a few years ago but working on shark conservation issues he often said that knowing what he knew later in life he could have never written jaws Um, But there's no doubt that it it did a lot of harm. And I think, you know, we're still feeling that. It's it's almost impossible to have a discussion about sharks or any sort of um, debate about sharks without bringing up the jaws. You know, it still resonates today, uh, all these years later.
0: Mm. Uh, It's one thing to swim alongside them, to have uh, the courage to do so, but then to take pictures of them and to do it well. How do you do it, Brian? And what are the challenges taking pictures underwater?
2: Well, that's really a, a great question, Lucy. I think, you know, um, although wildlife photography in all genres has sort of commonality, you, know, you have to be very patient, you have to know as much as you can about the behaviors of these animals and so forth. Uh, working underwater is quite different in the sense that, uh, in general, your, your cameras have to go inside underwater housings so you can't change film or or media cards, you can't change lenses, whatever you jump in the water with is what you're relegated to using, so if you're taking pictures of little macro creatures and a whale swims by, you you know, the best you could do maybe is get a picture of its eye. Um, So you can't, you you don't have the flexibility or the freedom. Uh, You you also have to get very close to your subjects, even in in the clearest of water, um, which is never that clear, but even if you had a hundred foot visibility, There's all the the properties of of light underwater. There's refraction and reflection and scatter. So we can't use a telephoto lens, for example. You know, my terrestrial counterparts can sit in a a camouflaged blind somewhere and use a 600-millimeter lens and wait for weeks, perhaps, for an elusive animal to, to wander past. But we underwater photographers have to get in the water within an hour, maybe as long as the air supply on our back will last, we have to get up close within a a meter or two of our subjects and make these pictures. So it really is quite different. And, um, you have to sort of be aware of all of those things and, and then compose the image and think about light. And oftentimes we're using a little bit of flash to bring back color and detail because the ocean acts like a giant filter. It, it, it removes all the warm colors, the reds and the yellows, even just a, a few feet underwater. So um, there, there is a lot more to underwater photography, and it's really ultimately up to the animal. You know, if, if um, it, it's a testament to the animals that, allow us into their worlds where we can get close and make those images
0: uh, on the phone with me again, Brian Scarry, renowned underwater photojournalist and author of several books, including Shark. He's one of the panelists for this weekend's Connecticut Forum on May 11th. Uh, more information uh, on our website, wnpr.org uh, uh, We're previewing a little bit of that conversation today here on uh, Where We Live. Uh, Brian, uh, I have mentioned you've been photographing for more than three decades. Uh, any advances in the gear you're using that help you stay in the water longer to get close to uh, these magnificent? Uh,
2: creatures? Absolutely. Um, You know, I I actually started diving in 1977, and um, I sort of became inspired to be a photographer. Maybe a year or two later, I remember attending a, a dive show called the Boston Sea Rover Show, which still goes on today. in in the spring, and uh, as a teenager, being in that dark audience and, and seeing photographers and filmmakers present their work, and I often describe it as having an epiphany where I decided that that was how I wanted to explore the ocean with a camera. But back then, you know, cameras were relatively primitive. My first camera was something called a Nikonis camera. It was a Nikonis II, which was one of the early models that Nikon had made of this amphibious camera, and it was, you know... Very small, it fit in your hands, a relatively small camera, and it, you could take it underwater, but it was one roll of film that went inside this little camera, and you had a two or three lenses that you had the potential to use for it. Um, today, you know, things, although it's not magnitudes different, but I'm using the, the sort of state-of-the-art DSLRs, digital um, single-lens reflex cameras. Uh, I'm still a Nikon shooter, so I'm shooting with the top-end Nikon cameras. I'm putting them in these very well-made you know, housings that are cast and machined so that you can access all the buttons and dials and so forth. Um, and digital has really been um, a sea change in terms of how we do things. You know, For many years working for National Geographic, I would go on assignment and shoot um, 500 rolls of film and not know what I had, and those rolls of film only had 36 frames, so after 36 pictures, you either had to come up or you had to take multiple cameras underwater with you, which is often hard to do, but today, you know, I can shoot thousands of pictures on a single dive, uh, and I can see instantly what I'm shooting. I know... What I have before my editor does, I used to wait by the phone for weeks for um, you know a call from my editor in washington d c at National Geographic to tell me what the film looked like, and you know now it's its magnitude's different, so I think those things are great it 's also that the camera technology is um, able to shoot in in lower light and working underwater that 's a real advantage to be able to change your film speed, your ISO you know if you jump in the water on a bright sunny day and then it gets cloudy and rainy, you can bump up the iso and still shoot. So uh, there's so many reasons that digital technology and just camera technology in general has improved vastly. And for somebody like me, It's made a a tremendous
0: difference. Brian, you've traveled around the world uh, capturing uh, photographs. Uh, We wanted to hone in on sharks and for our listeners uh, to to know that uh, you have written a book uh, called Shark with these magnificent uh, photographs. But could you take us uh, into a couple more uh, close encounters, so to speak, uh, including in the Bahamas uh, when you were uh, taking pictures of, I believe, reef sharks and lemon sharks. What happened when an angelfish uh, swam uh, close to you and your group?
2: Oh, yeah. Well, so I I did a story um I think it was in 2007 it was published for National Geographic about um sharks of the Bahamas and, and the reason that I had proposed that story was um I wanted to use it as a, a way to talk about the need for shark conservation that you know sharks are being killed at at alarming rates around the planet and you know I think part of that equation is that we don't know much about sharks. So the the more that we can learn about them and see them for their magnificence, uh, maybe the the more we can move the dial in favor of conservation. So I, w- I chose the Bahamas as a place to go because it's a, it's a sharky place. There's lots of different habitats and there are mangrove nurseries for baby sharks and reef sharks. And there are deep trenches where different species live. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, there's, there's always the potential for risk and uh, sometimes you're in a place and, you know, a, a a fish will swim near you, whether it's an angelfish or a hogfish or something else. And if the shark is sort of keyed in on that, that prey item, you know, it can get kind of dicey when you're between um, what it might be hunting and, and the animal, the, the the shark itself. So those kinds of things certainly do happen, um, and, and it can get a little intense for a few moments. But, I, you know, I have to say that, honestly, I've, met, I've made – many hundreds, if not thousands, of dives with sharks throughout my life. And um, there's a, a handful of those sort of uh, dicey moments and, and, and far more uh, great moments that outweigh the, the bad or the, the, the scary ones.
0: Are there any uh, particular species of shark that you uh, won't swim next to, Brian, to get that shot?
2: Well, um, you know, I, e- even in my book Shark, I... I document many of the what would be considered more predatory species the more quote dangerous species so um you know great whites and mako's and oceanic white tips and tigers and bull sharks and all these other species and pretty much all of those um um out there swimming alongside of them with the exception of the great white uh... I, I personally have only photographed great white sharks from inside the protection of a shark cage now there are divers in the world and, and photographers who um, i think routinely will will swim alongside of them and you know you see them holding onto their dorsal fins maybe or or doing these things i don't particularly think that's safe um... at least in the places where i have photographed great white sharks there tend to be many of them around or potentially multiple animals around and you know there've been days where i've looked out of the cage in mexico or south africa or south australia and i i see one great white shark sort of swimming around and i've often believed that yeah no problem i could i could get out there and and get up close and swim with that animal and it would be fine and it but it's not that animal that i'm necessarily so worried about it's it's being ambushed by another one from below and um I've seen that kind of thing happen, not with a human or anything, but you know, there have been days where I was watching a, a shark uh, sort of lazily meander around outside the cage, and uh, for hours. And you know, just when you're sort of lulled into that false sense of security, another one comes rocketing up to grab a, a tuna bait or something that's that's hanging on a on a line off the back of the boat. So, I think you know, all of this is is not without risk. But for me, I would say that you know, knowing what you're doing and, and taking it cautiously and, and stacking the deck as much as you can in your favor, you know, having an assistant in the water with me or maybe sometimes wearing a chain mail suit with certain species and things. I can 99 times out of 100 get in and get close to these animals and not be too uh, worried about my safety. It can be done quite safely, but there are certain species or certain scenarios where, you know, I, I just won't do that and and that's you know a personal choice,
0: uh, Brian, do you rely on an air supply, or have you gotten pretty uh, good at holding your breath?
2: well, I, I do both actually. Um, you know, for example, right now i'm'm I'm two years two and a half years into a big whale project that I'm doing for National Geographic, so I've been traveling around the world in various locations photographing multiple species of whales, and almost all of that work is free diving it's it's breath hole diving, so um, I'm you know. Practicing those techniques and and holding my breath and swimming down you know into the water and trying to get close to whales and dolphins and so forth with sharks um, it's mostly with scuba uh, i've I've used um, everything from closed circuit rebreathers, although i don't do a lot of that to um, to free diving with sharks and I think it just depends on the on the situation i've got friends who sort of Led me into the notion of, of snorkeling and free diving with sharks a, a number of years ago, and um, particularly with certain species like mako sharks that were a little bit more skittish, that were a little bit more difficult to, to keep around the boat, and the notion of you know, blowing bubbles with a scuba tank and being sort of this loud. loud Thing underwater um, would be a deterrent to those animals. So we we did it with just breath holding, and it seemed to be productive. It worked. So I think it really depends on the uh, on the situation and and the species that you're working with. But I would say that most of the time that I'm doing shark photography, I'm, I'm usually using um, scuba.
0: You mentioned the makos. I understand that there are two different types, but the mako, uh, many people might be aware that these are popular among sport fishermen. Why is that? Because they're so, uh, so fast and it's a, a great uh, catch if you're able to catch one, Brian?
2: Yes, that, that's exactly right. You know, uh, mako sharks, um, are, are certainly one of my favorite species of shark. They're, you know, all sharks, of course, are are pretty magnificent to be in the water with. They're all great predators, but there's just something uh, about seeing a mako, particularly underwater, that everything about that animal says predator. You know, they're they have a superior musculature, they are endothermic, they can generate heat in their body, which makes them very fast. They they can swim at Speeds of maybe up to 60 miles an hour underwater in, in short bursts, uh, and for for sport fishermen, they are tremendous fighting fish. You know, when you get one on the line, they will jump and leap and fight hard. So um, I don't do a lot of sport fishing, but for those who do, they they marvel at that animal. But you know, like all species of sharks, they're in steep decline. Uh, this is an animal that is hunted for for its food for for food and for its fins and um, they are in steep decline pretty much throughout their range around the world, so um, I think that 's one of the things we need to bear in mind when we when we think about you know catching any of these uh, species of sharks
0: mm. uh, other we, we mentioned uh, the Bahamas earlier. I was wondering if you could talk about your experience uh, capturing uh, photographs of of tiger sharks uh, and and what that was like
2: well, yeah, tiger sharks uh, you know they, these are considered to be the the most dangerous species of shark in tropical waters, the second most dangerous worldwide after the Great White. Uh, but it's an animal that has been portrayed as a mindless monster that just eats anything that it comes across in the ocean and um a very, you know fearful villain has is, is been portrayed as. And I'd spent years, I mean, decades really, early in my career, trying to find a place in the world where I could predictably find uh, tiger sharks and get close to them to photograph them. And um, it, it ultimately happened when some friends of mine that run a charter boat operation in Florida had sort of discovered this place in the northern Bahamas, which are shallow sand flats, a uh, place that they refer to as Tiger Beach, sort of this generic term to this spread out area, where pretty much on any day now, you can go out there and find yourself surrounded by, you know, maybe half a dozen or even a dozen of these big old tiger sharks. And some of them get up to 14 feet in length. And when you get 14 feet long, they get very wide as well and thick. So these are, you know, serious animals. Uh, But, you know, I have to say that in the many times that I've been out there photographing tiger sharks, uh, they've been pretty polite You know, again, I I don't want to be cavalier about this. I think we always have to be very cautious and understand that these are wild animals, that they are potentially dangerous, and particularly if an ecotourism operator is using bait to attract the shark, you know, chum or something, which often has to be done to get close to the animals. You know, that changes the equation a little bit, but it's been done day in and day out for many years now, decades, and it, it can be done very safely. There's not been a problem with that. So, um, I think to be close to an animal like that is to gain a different perspective and a different sort of respect. And, you know, throughout those decades of, of misinformation about these animals being just mindless killers and, you know, villains and so forth, divers can become ambassadors now to, to sort of say, look, you know, yeah, they're they're serious predators, but um, we should respect them and, and not let them be eradicated from our planet. You know, I think... I've got photographs for example where, you know, you see people nose to nose with a tiger shark and it's it's a little shocking to see that kind of a photo and people look at that and say, Oh wow, did that guy get his head taken off? you know, and the and the answer is no. And I think the 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 real message of a photo like that is that you wouldn't do that with a lion, right? You wouldn't you wouldn't get out of the, the Land Rover and the Serengeti and, and put a stake on the ground and go nose to nose with a lion. We know that would be Foolish, but but you can do that kind of thing with a tiger shark, and and you know it's it's not so bad. So I think that's more the message: is that they're not these terrible mindless villains; that they do have degrees of cognition. They scientists are revealing a lot more about what makes them tick, and and I think you know that as a journalist is what what I'm interested in 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 revealing as a way of you know celebrating the ocean.
0: Uh, Brian, you mentioned that uh, makos um, are threatened because of overfishing. With the tiger shark, what challenges do they face, and how does that impact the ecosystem?
2: Well, that is a really great question. Um, you know, I would, <clears throat> I would put some context to that question by by presenting a few facts first, and that is that, you know, we, we very much live on a water planet, um, you know, if you look at a picture of Earth from space, it's it's instantly uh, obvious that we live on a water planet. It's often been said that about three quarters of the Earth's surface is is ocean, but maybe more importantly, ninety eight percent of Earth's biosphere ninety eight percent of where life can exist on Earth is ocean. Every other breath that a human being takes comes from the sea. More than fifty percent of the oxygen you and I are breathing right now, or whether you live in Connecticut or Nebraska or the middle of the Har- Sahara Desert. The oxygen we breathe, most of it is coming from the ocean. So it's in our best interest to protect this this ocean planet. And yet the oceans are in real trouble. Uh, You know, we've lost 90% of the big fish in the ocean in the last 60 years because we've taken them all. 50% of the world's coral reefs are gone. Um, you've got ocean acidification occurring, which is a product of climate change. We're dumping so much carbon into the atmosphere and it, it's being absorbed by the ocean, which is the greatest ocean, uh, carbon sink on our planet. It takes in carbon, gives us back oxygen, but it's being maxed out. It's turning acidic, and that's eroding anything with calcium in it that lives in the ocean, which is a serious problem. So, sharks. Are predators, and just like wolves on land or, or grizzly bears, they play a vital role in keeping ecosystems healthy. And yet, every year, right now on planet Earth, we are killing in excess of 100 million sharks, mostly for their fins, for shark fin soup. And we can't remove 100 million apex predators from any ecosystem and expect it to be healthy. And that, and that's one of the the problems occurring in Earth's oceans. So. Whether it's tiger sharks or makos or great whites or any of these other species, they're all suffering from uh, a diminished amount of prey, the the food that they would normally go after and eat just isn't there in abundance anymore because we've degraded habitats and we've taken so much fish from the ocean. Uh, They're suffering from climate change, you know, the anthropogenic stresses that are occurring in the ocean where it's getting warmer, and that's affecting their prey. So we're seeing different migratory patterns of these animals. Some researchers think that tiger sharks, for example, on years when uh, climate is affecting their prey, they're, they're not reproducing, they're not mating. So there may be no age class going forward on those years for that species in certain places. So, you know, these are very complex equations that are occurring underwater in places where we don't often get to see. But we do know enough to know that it's all changing dramatically and quite rapidly um, because of all of these different things that are happening. So, you know, it's affecting sharks, but it's affecting everything in the ocean.
0: This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall I'm speaking with renowned underwater photojournalist Brian Scarry. We're going to continue uh, chatting after the break, and we're going to be joined by a marine biologist, too. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Albathanchel. Photojournalist Brian Scarry is my guest today. He specializes in marine wildlife and underwater environments. His work for National Geographic over the last two decades has led him around the world capturing amazing photographs. You can have the chance to see some of Brian Scarry's photographs up close and hear the stories behind them at this weekend's Connecticut Forum. We're previewing a bit of that conversation today. I want to take a quick call. Eric from Middletown. Eric, what's your question?
2: Hi, I have a Uh, detailed question about uh, shark safety. A fellow was killed by a a great white this past summer at the beach that I have swum at all my life. And what I'm wondering is um, is are you safer or are you safe if you're in the water that's only five, six feet deep or you're sort of body surfing where the waves are breaking or do great whites in particular sometimes come into the shallower water like that as well?
0: A great question, Eric. Uh, I want to actually um, have our next guest help answer that question. Dr. James Solikowski is a marine biologist and professor at the University of New England, joining us via Skype. Uh, James, welcome to our show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Were you able to hear Eric's question from Middletown?
1: Uh, I was, yes. That's a great question, too um if, if i heard it correctly he was interested in if it's safe to uh, be in waters where you can body surf waist deep yes. or so correct yes uh yes yeah, so i, I think uh, catching in some of the other uh comments by brian which are which was uh, were amazing um i think that you know you have to be diligent wherever you are in the water um and as long as there are seals around um, you have to be extra careful, and I think you know, white sharks will come in shallow and uh, to hunt.
0: Uh, James, earlier we were talking uh, with Brian about uh, you know the perception of great white sharks in popular culture, um, but uh, actually, there's a lot about uh, great whites that we don't know. Can you tell us why?
1: Well, white sharks are one of those elusive species uh, that uh, you know migrate great distances. They move around a lot. Uh, they're also a protected species. So we have to look at alternative methods in which to study them, and uh, it can be very difficult to catch uh, the individuals that we need to study, the large ones in particular, uh, when you're looking at reproduction and growth rates. So um, they're highly mobile, um, and they are, uh, can be tricky to catch uh, in that respect. Mm-hmm.
0: Ah, uh, Brian, scary! Uh, because you live in New England, um, you know you're obviously very familiar with uh, uh, the tensions uh, between uh, people who enjoy going to the Cape, uh, seeing the seals rebound, and now uh, the sharks are also there as well. Um, you've done um, some photographs with biologist Greg Skomal. Uh, what's your take on the return of of the great whites here?
2: Right, well, first, let me say hello to james great great to be on the on the same program with you here, James. Um, but to answer your question lucy yeah, and, and to address eric 's uh, comment as well too about you know are you, are you safe in five or six feet of water in those waters? Um, you know I think um, as James said, I think you have to always be diligent and and really. Um, be mindful of the fact that um, this is an unpredictable situation. But, you know, I spent a couple of seasons doing my story about great white sharks on Cape Cod. Um, These are waters that I used to dive in. uh, When I was starting out as a diver, I used to dive those exact waters on shipwrecks and photographing lobsters and striped bass and all that uh, kind of wildlife. And today, I quite honestly wouldn't do that. I I wouldn't go there. I mean, what we think is happening on the Cape is there seems to be anthropological evidence that shows that there was a robust seal population in that area of Cape Cod, maybe back in the 1600s, maybe around the time that the the pilgrims uh, first came to, to New England, to Massachusetts. But a lot of those seals were killed by early sealers. They were pretty much wiped out But in 1972, the United States created the Marine Mammal Protection Act, which was a great thing. It it helped protect marine mammals, dolphins, whales, and seals from being killed. And in these decades since 72, those seals, particularly gray seals, have rebounded on the Cape. So we believe that there was probably great white sharks back in the 1600s there in big numbers, but they went away when the seals were all killed, and now they're rediscovering it. So it's really a conservation victory. and and, and at some point it will probably create a natural equilibrium where the sharks will, you know, remove a lot of the seals and you'll get this natural balance. But it is a a natural situation that will probably always have some seals and some sharks around. Uh, Right now, the common literature about great white shark predation states that great whites need about 80 feet of water to ambush a pinniped, a seal. But what we were seeing on, on Cape Cod is that they're hunting in a very different manner. They're hunting in less than 10 feet of water quite often because that's where the seals are hanging out. So, um, you know, I think we have to be very mindful of that, and, and there are organizations out there that, you know, can offer some tips on safety and, and things to to make yourself uh, safer. But at the end of the day, this is a, a, a dynamic situation that's evolving uh, quite rapidly, really, and I think, you know, anything that we used to do a decade ago in those waters may not be um, be applicable today.
0: Uh, James Silikowski, again, marine biologist and professor at the University of New England, is also with us. Uh, James, when we hear uh, Brian talk about this conservation success story on the East Coast, uh, we're also curious, because we've touched on it earlier, about the threats that uh, many shark species are facing, uh, including uh, with overfishing and uh, ocean acidification. Can you talk about those threats and what we we now know?
1: Yeah, those are threats that as Brian kind of alluded to, is uh, have have been affecting sharks for quite some time. And that's why we see these population declines. Uh, We here in the United States uh, and also in some of the European nations have done a a great job of of managing uh, those species. And if you look along our coast in the United States, a lot of our sharks are actually recovering. And our populations are getting, uh, rebuilding, getting larger, which is great. Uh, You know, as Brian said, these are apex predators. Uh, We need them to keep our ecosystems clean um, and in balance. Uh, It's uh, other areas of the world um, where the management isn't uh, tight or there's no management at all. And that's where we get into the the situation where these unregulated fisheries that really have been decimating our, our sharks. And here in the United States, we're doing a great job at it. Um, and so that's, we can kind of focus on that and kind of bridge our ability to, to help um, these other nations uh, do a better job at, at their management purposes. That's, a, that's step number one. With climate change and ocean acidification, we're just understanding what those causes might be and as brian said you're looking at all sorts of different changes and how fast uh, individuals are able to reproduce where they reproduce Uh, are their nursery ground habitats shifting Um, do they need to find new areas um, new food sources Uh, and everything goes along with that Um, you know most people don't know this but a lot of shark species lay eggs and those eggs sit on the ground and if you're not in an environment that's conducive for that, uh, then it can cause problems with the development of those embryos within those eggs. So it's a it's a multifaceted uh, problem that that sharks are facing. And the only way that we can really help that is if we uh, you know work together as uh, a community uh, as a species in order to to better manage and conserve um, those uh, those individuals.
0: Uh, What about the issue of plastics in our oceans, Uh, Brian? I believe you were just in Portugal talking about this uh, very issue.
2: Yeah, I was. I I just got home on Saturday from um, speaking engagements in in Porto, Portugal, and in um, Oxfordshire, England. um, and, And a big part of the discussion with these folks was about plastics in the ocean. It's become... Uh, such a huge problem. National Geographic has launched this this multi-year initiative called Planet or Plastic. You know, basically make a choice: uh, Are we going to have plastic? Or are we going to have a planet? Because you know, the the latest the statistics sort of indicate that every single year right now on our planet we are putting about 18 uh, billion pounds of plastic into the ocean. It's a staggering number, and um, I've seen it. Everywhere I go, you know, I've been on some of the most remote islands in the world, places that took me six days by boat from Fiji to get to these uninhabited islands in the middle of the central South Pacific and walked along what should have been pristine white beaches, uh, sandy beaches, and was up to my calves in plastic trash for a mile. Um, it's everywhere. You see it in the ocean. I just came back uh, a couple of weeks ago from Sri Lanka. I was on assignment for almost a month in Sri Lanka. And on multiple occasions out there, I jumped in the water and cut out sea turtles that were wrapped in plastic fishing net, or one was even towing a laundry basket. It was wrapped in a, an orange plastic basket that it became entangled in. So we're seeing it everywhere. Uh, it's in the deepest parts of the ocean, um, and it's, it's, it's on our beaches. It, it's inside most animals in the ocean, and therefore it's inside of us, and obviously having a harmful effect. So, you know, I think what, what I've learned... By talking to folks who really study this issue, is that you know we obviously have to we have to reduce the amount that we're putting out there, and and a lot of this has to do with embracing a circular economy where manufacturers have to sort of take ownership of the products that they're making. You know that they they can no longer just make something and let it be bought by a consumer and then be done with it. That if they're a plastic parts in whatever they make that there has they have to sort of own it from cradle to cradle they have to be able to take it back and reuse that so we're not putting as much out there we obviously have to eliminate single-use plastics which can be done so this is you know a big task there's not a silver bullet but there's many things that i think we can be doing as as you know human beings to reduce the amount of plastic we're putting out there um in nature and certainly in the ocean Mm.
0: Brian again is a renowned underwater photojournalist uh, who's been with us to talk a little bit about his career. He's going to be at the Connecticut Forum this Saturday, May 11th. More information at ctforum.org. Brian, before I let you go, uh, any advice to aspiring underwater photographers out there?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think I would say that we live at a very interesting time um, in terms of exploration and particularly in the ocean. Um, You know, we have really fascinating science being done by james as as you know he'll talk a little bit more about whether it's sharks or whales or whatever it is but we need good storytellers so i would say if you're interested in becoming an underwater photographer doing this kind of work you know follow that passion create a strategy for, you know, how to get to where you want to be, um, create a great, strong portfolio, and, and then get out there and, and do the things that, that really interest you. But um, it's a good time. Technology is exciting, and uh, the ocean still remains largely unexplored. So there's lots of, lots of grist for the mill out there for anybody who wants to do it.
0: Well, Brian, uh, thanks again for your time. and look forward to talking with you on Saturday.
2: Same here. Thank you.
0: Bye-bye. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Dr. James Solikowski's is going to stay with us. He's a marine biologist and professor at the University of New England. We're going to ask him more about different sparks, shark species, rather, that we see uh, in our neck of the woods. And if you have a question, you can join us, too, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanial. Uh today we've been learning more about uh underwater photography with Brian Scary but also about uh the very many different shark species out there. Uh with us via Skype is Dr. James Zulakowski, marine biologist and professor at the University of New England. Uh James, uh, we were learning a little bit about, you know, why uh species like the great white are so elusive and it's hard to capture data specifically uh the reproduction data. I understand you're working on um, a project that might help uh Uh, scientists and others uh, get more data about specific uh, shark species. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, I think uh, when you look Mm at what Brian discussed uh, and kind of what we'll talk about now is sharks are elusive uh, and they are hard to catch. Uh, And not only are they hard to catch, but they're hard to catch at certain life history stages that we we want to study. Um, And one of those life history stages is pregnant females. Uh, and uh, we right now are working to be, develop this new tag. Um, it's actually called the birth alert tag, uh, which is uh, an intrauterine satellite tag. And most people think about satellite tags as tracking uh, movement patterns. Uh, and, and they can be tags that are placed on a dorsal fin. When the shark comes up, it transmits a location. Um, but these tags are uh, a little bit different. Um, same technology. But uh, when this tag is inserted into a female, um, she carries it along with her pups. And uh, when those pups are born, uh, that tag pops out so we can get a a location of where um, that actually occurred. And that's really important because where these areas uh, are located, uh, we refer to them as nursery grounds. So just like we might drop our children off at a as a, a daycare or nursery, uh, where they're they're protected and and you know cared for, these nursery grounds sort of provide that same habitat for for baby sharks. And knowing where they are, and, and the timing uh, of these uh, birth events helps us to protect these areas a little bit better. Mm. And so we get to link some really cool uh, methodologies together. So we perform an ultrasound on sharks. Uh, we also place a fin mount tag on the mother so we can track her movements as well. And so we hope that uh, this will provide this sort of holy grail of shark research um, for these mobile species such as white sharks and tiger sharks and four beagle sharks and whatnot.
0: And where exactly are you tagging these specific sharks?
1: So uh, this is in this is a great question. We're in collaborating right now with uh, the University of Miami and my colleague Dr. Neil Hammerschlag. Uh, And we are working on an area that Brian described, uh, Tiger Beach um, in the Bahamas. I mean, it's a a known area that that Neil has been studying for quite some time, and we've been uh, researching tiger shark reproduction there, and uh, they provide a really great model to to really see uh, how this tag will work, what modifications we need to make for the tag uh, in order to to use it across a a wide range of different um, shark species.
0: Are there any concerns uh, how these devices uh, that you will be uh, putting into female sharks, how they might impact pups?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So this tag has been development for uh, over two years with all those concerns in mind. So the size and the shape of the tag, you can imagine that the tag sort of looks like an egg. So it's small uh, uh, when you talk about a a 14-foot shark, Um, it's not a lot of space. Uh, it, it's um, a device that um, doesn't uh, cause any harm to the, to the pups while it's inside. Uh, it's not going to corrode or anything like that. So uh, any kind of precautions that were necessary um, were taken along uh, the way. And it's also something that we've worked uh, through all the necessary protocols at different universities as well as far as uh, the animal care and use. Uh, uh, of of and keeping all those sorts of things in mind. Mm.
0: I mentioned that you're a professor at the University of New England. Again, great whites get a lot of attention up here, but if you could tell us a little bit more about maybe some other types of sharks that we would uh, possibly are in our waters and why they're here, James?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Most people, uh, if you were to talk to them, only think that we have white sharks, but we actually have uh, eight different species here in New England that are close to shore uh, that you might interact with. And um, some of the iconic ones are the mako sharks. I think everybody can recognize that. We also have blue sharks, uh, sand tiger sharks, uh, poor beagle sharks, um, spiny dogfish. Uh, We have basking sharks and, of course, uh, white sharks, and we have thresher sharks. So we have quite the array of individuals that are are close to shore. We're talking, you know, somewhere within, you know, five to ten miles. And Once you get farther offshore into the Gulf Stream, then it's a whole other can of worms, and you get all the tropical species that kind of move up. So it's a pretty dynamic place.
0: Mm. We were hoping to speak with a researcher about lost sharks, but if you could tell us uh, what you know as a marine biologist of those particular sharks.
1: Yeah, the one thing that I think Brian alluded to is, you know, our understanding in general of sharks is very limited. Uh, and there are, uh, if you were to look across the spectrum, um, what we do know uh, is constantly changing because of climate change uh, and, and habitat destruction and overfishing. So we're constantly relearning what we know about sharks. So when you talk about lost sharks, Uh, things that may live in the deep that we are just now being discovered Uh, it um, it becomes even more challenging and to be honest with you we've got sharks that are five to ten miles offshore here in new england that we know very little about Uh, one's the poor beagle um, which we've sort of nicknamed the phantom shark because uh, we uh, it's so hard and cryptic to find and, and to get a good understanding about its biology
0: James, we can't let the hour go without mentioning that U.N. report on biodiversity that just came out and uh, one million species of plants and animals in danger of extinction. Uh, as a marine biologist, uh, um, some uh, uh, last words for our listeners about some things that they should be thinking about that uh, could help uh, reverse uh, this uh, this uh, terrible trend.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I think what we have to understand as people and as human beings that live on the planet is that uh our everyday use of plastics and 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 other things uh, really have a a long-lasting impact and we need to really think about staying green uh, as well as um, looking at ways in which we can look to integrate with the ecosystem um, and work better to allow uh you know, entities to to enjoy the water, like tourists and commercial fishing and recreational fishing to go on, but yet let those individuals, those animals, uh, strike a balance between uh, what we want to do and and how they need to live. Mm.
0: Dr. James uh, Sulikowski, again, uh, is a marine biologist, professor at the University of New England, joining us today via Skype. Thanks so much for your time.
1: Thank you for
0: having me. Today's show produced by Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. You can learn more about the show at wnpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Thanks for listening.